Hello, my name is Anne. The second reading is Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be receiving what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. So if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. We're going to spend some time reflecting on part of 2 Corinthians and also Revelation. And at the end of uh, this sermon, there will be a time where it will be a bit different in that I'll be encouraging you to pray with one another. So, um, so it will be nice for us to particularly think about what we're thinking about t- today and to pray with one another and to think God's thoughts after him and to have our hearts aligned with God's heart. And so I'll pray first and we'll consider this passage. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, which is living and active. We pray, Lord, that as we dwell on it, meditate upon it, that you'll give us your heart's desire, that our lives will be shaped by what you want and your vision for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like to ask whether you've thought about the legacy you will leave to your family in this world. Ever thought about that? It's been on my mind recently, not because I'm thinking about dying, but because already this year, I've attended two funerals. I watched another one streamed. And at funerals, you, you, you can't help but reflect on your own mortality. At these funerals I attended, it, it was quite encouraging. In the tributes, in the eulogy, you have there a summary of the person's life, their achievements, their, their influence, the difference they made, the impact they have left upon the family, 
And each of those funerals I attended this year, the wives said beautiful things about their husbands. The sons, the daughters, they said wonderful things about their father. And so if you're like me, at a funeral, you can't help but think, I wonder what will be said about me when my time is up. And so I was thinking with Yvonne, what will you say about me? Will it be anything good, anything nice? Well, funerals can be confronting because what it does is that it gets us to think about the end before it happens. It gets us to reflect on, well, what does my life amount to? Is this it? Will there be a legacy? Was my life worth living? But now I'd like us to think, not so much of us individually, but us together as a church. I mean, this church has been here for you know how long? It started across the road, across Canterbury Road, but it's been around for 137 years. What do you think would have been the impact of this church? From the perspective of eternity, looking back, will the life of this church, in the end, amount to anything good? What do you think? All the things we do, all our efforts in creche, in kids' church, in youth group, in the Connect and Coffee, mainly music, growth groups, our community days, our outreach, evangelism, Christianity Explored, will it amount to anything in the end? What do you think? Do you think we're wasting our time? Or will there be a significance that goes beyond just our own lives, beyond our families, beyond this church, but into all eternity? Because to ask such a question, what will it be in the end, is to ask the question about God's vision. What is it that God will do? And on one level, God has shown us. God has shown us the end before the end. And it's not like one where we have a loved one give a eulogy about us, a loved one who would share and say nice things about us. But this is one where Jesus speaks. Jesus gives his verdict. And Jesus, in a sense, gives his eulogy of us, if there's anything nice to say. And there will be a finality to it. This is it. Your 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, it amounts to this. And that's what we see. Have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. and Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So that's everything, seen and unseen. All our deeds and our lives accounted for. All our desires revealed, all our words we've ever said weighed, our lives laid bare, our souls exposed. Now I'd like you now to imagine that moment. Sometime in the future, before the judgment seat of Christ, just remain in that moment for a second. Jesus says to you, this is what your life has amounted to. How would you feel? Does it fill you with dread or joy facing your Saviour? 
What do you think? And it's worth noticing here in this verse, the judgment that is spoken about here is not whether you'll get into heaven or not, because the Bible is already very clear on that. Whatever good we do is just filthy rags. Nothing we do can bring us into heaven. We can never earn it. All of us, we've turned away. There is no one righteous, not even one. We only enter in because of Jesus and his merits. But the judgment that is spoken here in this verse is about the judgment upon Christians. Just as in the previous verse, Paul says, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. You see, all Christians will stand and appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I suspect some of us who have been Christians for even quite a while, we might be surprised by this. I thought becoming a Christian, I've escaped judgment. I'm in the kingdom of God. Well, yes and no. Yes, in that we do get in the kingdom of God when we do believe and trust in Jesus. But no, there is still a judgment on how Christians have lived our lives. We will all face Jesus before his throne. Not that we will lose our salvation, but we may lose any commendation. Now, I wonder how that makes you feel. Standing before Jesus as a believer, and he's telling you, this is what your life has amounted to. Our life on earth will be shown for what it really is. And so Jesus might be reflecting in his you know, eulogy of us. That time when you dropped off that meal to that family who was struggling, and you're one of those who always drop off meals, no one at all knew it, but I saw it. Or when you fed the many homeless in that ministry in the city you were involved in for years on Saturdays, you were in fact doing it for me. Or when you visited and organized walks to those who are lonely, closed in, the sick, you you kept on doing it. Not, no one knew about that, your efforts, your time, but it brought me joy. Or how you manage all those crazy Excel spreadsheets. Not that Jesus will use the word crazy, but how you manage all those spreadsheets for the enabling of the ministries you were involved in. The countless hours you put in. I saw that. Or when you remain the person of integrity, and honesty and righteousness at school, in the workplace. You never descended to gossip. You never were nasty in your words. You never took the credit of anyone else. You were never ashamed of speaking about me. You, you walked around with the aroma of the gospel, and I noticed that. You see, how we live as Christians will be tested by fire in the end, and we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ with Something to show for or nothing at all. Saved for sure, but just as one who escapes the flames. There's this old hymn which I love and I've shared it before. And it's helpful to help us feel how important what we do in life is. It's a hymn by Charles Luther from 1877. He wrote this hymn after hearing a story of a young man who was about to die. And this young man, he, he only became a Christian for, for a month before his death. And, and he was sad because he did not have much time to serve the Lord. And so he said, I'm not afraid to die. Jesus saves me now. But must I go empty-handed? 
And so Charles Luther, he took his story and put it into a hymn. Must I go and empty-handed? Thus, my dear Redeemer, meet. Not one day of service give him. Lay no trophy at his feet. Oh, the years in sinning wasted. Could I but recall them now? I would give them to my Saviour. To his will I'd gladly bow. We will all face the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not whether we'll get into heaven or not, because that's only by grace. But how we live as Christians. And so be in that moment once again, in that future sometime before the throne. You see the end. It will happen. What does it do to you now? 2023. Well, for some of us, it might be a wake-up call. You see, life is not just the monotony of day after day and weeks after weeks and months after months and years after years and we grow old and then we die. We go with the flow in life, we flow with the stream. But if I know that I'm going to stand before Jesus one day, it means that he thinks what I do now matters. That has to shape me now. And so for some of us it might be, I need to wake up. I can't squander the life God has given me. But for others, knowing that there is a judgment, it should not be a source of dread, as though we fear meeting him. Rather, a source of encouragement, of motivation, of vision. You see, Jesus is saying how we live our life now can make an eternal impact. It means then that we all need to grasp and know deep within that my feeble efforts, my weak efforts, my failings can have an eternal significance, really? Well, that's what Jesus thinks. You see, seeing the end has to shape the present. It's just like thinking about your eulogy or the eulogy that someone might say about you. If I want Yvonne to say something nice about me, I better live that way now. It makes sense. If I know I'm going to see my Saviour before his judgment throne, I better live a life that is consistent with that, with that vision. And that's what he did for the Apostle Paul. Verse 11, we try to persuade men. We're not wasting our time lounging around. Verse 13, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. Out of our mind. A Christian, out of his mind. A maniac for Christ. I mean, that's what Paul would say. I don't care if the world thinks that of me. I don't care if the world thinks I'm a fool for Christ because why? Heaven is at stake. The salvation of souls is at stake. The honour of Christ is at stake. It's why, if you think about it, those you know, people we see in this church, friends, family, Christians, books you read, you see Christians do the craziest things. And the world will look upon the Christian and think, you are nuts. You are out of your mind. I mean, you hear of stories of Christians who would retire really young. Why? Why not work till you drop so that they can give their good years to serving the Lord? You hear of Christians who would organize lunchtime prayer meetings at school, the Christian Union, Christian Movement, in the workplace, and they're known as the Christian amongst their friends, amongst the colleagues. Crazy. 
You hear of Christians who would live out the later years of their lives being intentional. I'm going to mentor the young man, the young woman, in the ways of the Lord. They use up the end of their life going on mission trips around the world. My GP, each time I go to him, well, he's a very nice GP. He bulk wheels, so he's very good. <laughs> We're spending the bulk of the time talking about theology and church. He's a Christian man rather than whatever I'm coming to see him about. He studied at Bible college and he would share sometimes in between patients. He's doing his Hebrew vocab. Next week, he's going to be ordained as a minister. He's out of your mind. What do you think you're doing? You're a GP. But that's, in the eyes of the world, a fool, a maniac for Christ. But you see the end, it shapes the present. We see what God will do. It has to shape our lives now. And so now Paul, he comes to the very crux of his existence. The one who is at the very center of the universe is also at the very center of his own heart. Why would I be willing to be out of my mind? Look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, which means the love of Christ, it constrains us, it directs us, it controls us. I can't do anything but. It focuses my prayers, my affections, my attention, my life. Now, if you think about what Paul is saying here, what's the motivation for Paul in life? It was not primarily his love for Jesus. Of course we need to love Jesus. Nor was it primarily his love for his neighbor. Of course we need to love our neighbors. But it was the love of Jesus for him first. And so notice the direction of the love. It's not from him out, but from Jesus in him first. Compelling him, constraining him, moving him out in the love of Christ. And what is the love of Christ about? Well, verse 14, he goes on. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. You want to know how much God loves us. We see it in the cross of Christ. The love of Christ centers on the cross of Christ. He died so that I don't have to. He bore the wrath of God so that I could escape it. He was forsaken so that I would never be God-forsaken. He died for me so that I die too. I die too to my old ways, to my idols, to my ambition, to even my life. I carry the cross and I follow him. I can't help but be compelled. Moved in this life because I see the end. Constrained, directed by the love of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you, do you think that has taken place in your heart? What is it that motivates you? What is it that drives you in life? What is it that makes you make the costly sacrifices in life? And let me ask you, do you think this heart, compelled by the love of Christ, is obvious in us collectively as a church? Do you think our church, we're motivated by the very same things that motivates the world, or are we motivated by something higher? You see, the older I get, 
the longer I've been a Christian, it's not that I, in a sense, sin less, but rather I see more of my sins as God, by His Spirit, exposes the sins that are hidden in the deep recesses of my heart. And the longer I've been a minister, the more and more I've seen the ugliness of sin, even amongst the people of God. How pride and selfishness destroy relationships. How addiction, gambling, pornography, drinking, lead to terrible consequences. How unfaithfulness tears families apart. And what does the love of Jesus say? He says, I see your filth. I see your dirt, your ugliness, the putrid behavior. But I love you still. In fact, my love will enter into you and change you. Octavius Winslow, 19th century Baptist minister, he said, Into this ocean of divine love, let your heart, just as it is, plunge. Just love that picture. Just plunge into the love of Jesus. Well, John Owen, the Puritan, he said, When we come to understand the love of Jesus, we're seeing the infinite ocean of love for us in the bosom of the Father. And isn't that what the world desperately needs? They need to know this type of love. We heard it in the video. Love of Christ compels us. If we really are gripped by that love, that he sees it all, but he loves me still, how can I not but? And that's why the Apostle Paul goes on to say, verse 15, And he died for all, that those who should live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If we understand and believe this, it means then that if you are a Christian, your life is no longer yours. It's no longer mine. It belongs to Jesus. He's purchased it by his blood, by his death. So that the center of the universe becomes the center of my heart as well. Seeing the end has to shape our present. Seeing what God has shown us has to shape our lives, individually and the life of this church. And what will it all amount to in the end? What will it all be for? Will it be worth it in the end? I want you again to stand metaphorically in that moment, in the future, before the throne of Christ. And he's giving his eulogy, his verdict, the ultimate result of being compelled by the love of Christ and transformed by the truth of Jesus. What is it? Well, I'm not sure how precisely it will be. We only know as much as God has revealed. But I want you to imagine this with me. You're standing there at the judgment seat of Jesus. And Jesus says, not one of your prayers, not one of your unseen service in my name, not one of those Bible studies you've led, not one of those children you taught or discipling of the youth or sharing about me to your friends and colleagues, to your neighbours or not one of those times where you express hospitality or you led the Christian union or you're running the prayer meeting at work or not one of those times you shared the gospel or 
standing up for righteousness, or when you were persecuted because of my name, or when you persevered through suffering and trials and the years of ill health with such endurance and trust. Not one of those moments, not one of those times was wasted. Not one was wasted. Your life was not in vain at all. Because, look at this. Imagine with me again. The gates of heaven are opened, wide open. And what do we see? We see what the Apostle John saw, that vision, and it just takes our breath away. Overwhelming joy that fills our heart to the brim. In fact, it overflows. We see the glory of God. And what do we see? Revelation 7. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see an ocean of people around the throne. Imagine with me. You look around, you see your grandparents, no longer with dementia. You see your parents, no longer with the cancer that took them away. You notice over that corner, the Sunday school teacher who taught you. And then you see the youth you discipled and the little kid you prayed for. And the colleague whom you thought would not in a million years believe, but they're going to spend it the next million with you. And then you look and you see the apostles, Peter, James, John. You see Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses. And then you see John Calvin and you think, I want to stand next to him. But most important of all, in the very center, you see the Lamb. You see your king, your savior, your older brother, the one who bled for you, the one who wipes away your tears. And then you hear the angel say, join in. Join in praising God. I mean, wouldn't our hearts just burst, basking in the glory of God? And that's why this is our vision. In fact, it's God's vision. We see the destination. It shapes our prayers, our affections, our life, our whole being. And so that's what we see, to see God glorified, the first part. In all we do, big or small, we acknowledge God is God. We bow down and worship him as God, and we want the world to join in because we see the great multitude. How? As the love and truth of Jesus, we're captivated. We're so compelled by the love of Jesus. We're so transformed by the truth of who he is. How can we not? And what will happen naturally? Overflow from his church to the world. It doesn't stay with us. It doesn't stay in here, but it overflows from our families to our church to Surrey Hills to the nations. We're aiming for the nations. Us, a small group of us, aiming for the nations. So over to you. What will it look like for you? 
to live your life now knowing the very end? What will you do tomorrow? This week? This year? This lifetime? Amongst your friends? In your schools? At your workplace? How will the love and truth of Jesus overflow from you, from us, to those around? Will you be like this passage, an ambassador for Jesus? And what will it look like for our church to overflow with such love and truth? So that us, in our feeble efforts, we can make an eternal difference to the lives of those around us. You see, when the elders, along with the board, decided a bit over a year ago to propose to the church that we purchase five Warrigal Road, which God in his kindness blessed us with, what was the vision for that? It wasn't just acquiring property for the sake of property. In fact, our elders got together and we were praying, thinking, what is our vision? We had an earlier version of this, but it was to see the love and truth of Jesus overflow, move from our generation to generations to come so that there will never, in a sense, be a time when this church dies. Or when the elders last year proposed a third service, where at that point, let's consider adding another morning service. And we were very grateful for the church's support. It wasn't for the sake of getting more busy for busy's sake. But isn't it so that the love and truth of Jesus could overflow so that we could have more people impacted by what Jesus has done? And if you just consider what the future will hold, what our future will hold in God's good purposes, it should be exciting. Here are some of mine. We want to see our church grow as our ministry team grows as well. We want to add on another full-time minister. We want to train gospel ministers and workers so that we're reaching the nations. We've got an apprentice. We've got two student ministers starting this year. We want to see more. We want to see the love and truth of Jesus overflow. We want to be a place that sends out missionaries, and so it's on the heart of some of our elders. Let's organize a short-term mission so that some might do it long-term. We want to see a church where we reach our community more deeply so that we engage with the local schools so that in this biblically illiterate generation, they might come to know of life and hope in Jesus. We want to be a place where people will know us for genuine fellowship, for deep love, for life and hope in Jesus. I mean, wouldn't it be great where we run even marriage courses, parenting courses, not for us, but for those around us so that they can see God's way always works best. What will God's vision, where will it drive us? I think it's just exciting to consider and to pray. But I have wondered, and sometimes I feel this way as well, and it may be true of us, that our vision is too small for the big God we have. Only a third service? Why stop there? But I can admit that I sometimes feel daunted by it. If we really pray this and believe it, believe what God has shown us. And this week, I was personally feeling, really, God? As I was preparing this talk, really, God, you you want us to do and think as big as you? How can a bunch of weak, frail, broken vessels make any eternal difference? And this week, something beautiful happened. In the mercy and kindness 
and the beautiful providence of God. He showed me a glimpse of what this church has done. And this happened. Yesterday, I had the wonderful privilege of speaking at a wedding. And after the wedding, at afternoon tea, a guy came up to me. And he asked me, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, I was part of that Deacon Uni CU mission at your church a few years ago before COVID. And he said to me, somehow those few days just left an impression on his heart. Now, of course, we didn't do much with him. He was only with us a few days, but somehow staying with his host family, being part of some of the Bible studies, being part of the youth group. Now, of course, Deacon Uni CU did all the heavy lifting. They trained him, they discipled him, but somehow he said, my time with you left an impression on me. And so I asked him, so where are you now? Which church are you at? And he said, I now go to a Korean church. And I said, wow, your English is great. And he said, because I want to get better at Korean so that I can share my faith to my father who does not believe. And he said, my Koreans improve. And I'm reading the Bible with my father. Now, in sharing that story, no credit to us whatsoever. Why? The glory is God's alone. But it, isn't that marvelous? As I was thinking, really, God, you know, such a vision so big, eternal difference. But God, in His providence, gave me just that little glimpse the impact us can have. And that was only incidental a few years ago. And so today I began getting us to think about our legacy. On one level, I thought about it. In a sense, it doesn't really matter. Who cares? I'm dead. Whatever they say, they say. But what would be nice is that this person, this man, this woman, was part of God's vision. What God was doing, bringing glory to him as his life, her life, was so shaped by the love and truth of Jesus, it overflowed to the world. And so that should be our prayer. And so my encouragement to you now, as I flagged at the beginning, we're going to do something different. That is, I'm going to encourage you to, just around you, groups of two or three, we've got three prayer points on the screen. Just one of you, pick one of the prayers, and it's just one minute. And those of us who are regulars, look out for those who are new. And if you're new, visiting us, listen in. Be comfortable, join in if you like. So just one of you, one prayer, one minute, and then we'll sing. Let's do that. People said Amen.